We are in chapter 9. We'll be going over multiple chapters today, but I will just be reading most of chapter 9. Let's look to God's word now. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul's son, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Salishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they, did not, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saw Saul, the Lord said to him, told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? But Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if you've had this experience before, but if you've read a good story or seen a good film in which there's lots of twists and turns to the plot and uh, 
someone you thought was a good guy ends up not being a good guy. The example of my children is always the story of Frozen and the, uh, the prince who comes uh, ends up not being a good guy. Well, it's always interesting to watch it the second time because sometimes you'll be watching it, as has happened before, and they say, I always knew that guy was bad. Oh, really? Did you know that guy was bad from the beginning? And you start to look back and you think, well, there, were there signs? Were there signs that this character wasn't who I thought it would be? Uh, we even do this, in a sense, in life in general. If something happens to us uh, and we think, were there, were there signs leading up to this? Could I have seen this beforehand? Well, what we're about to do with this story here is we're beginning the story of Saul. And some of you, I know, know the story of Saul. You know where the story of Saul goes. So here's my plea to those who know the story of Saul. Let's give it a chance here. Let's not try to read too far back into the story. Let's see where this story goes in a sense um, and, and resist that temptation to think, I always knew where Saul was going. This chapter, these chapters here that we're looking at, have a very good beginning to the story of Saul. We have looked last week, and Pastor Larry uh, saw and, and, and taught about how Israel selfishly asked for a king, very idolatrously. God had promised a king. There were promises in the Old Testament before this that God would give Israel a king. But the way in which they had asked for a king uh, was sinful, that they wanted to be like the other nations, that they weren't trusting the Lord as their king. But what we see in these chapters, what we're going to see, is that God is gracious, and that the first sort of beginning part of this is very good. He gives a king that is good for Israel, um, a man who is humble, a man who is not assuming of this kingship and this role. So we'll be looking at this as we do. I also want you to think of this. Of course, where this is leading us to point to Christ, our king. But also think about this. This is a story of a call of a man who is not expecting it. To think of your own call, the call to the kingdom that we even sung about here at the beginning of our service today. Hearing the call of the kingdom that God has given to us as well. Well, as we begin here on the outline, I've given you a kind of nice structure to the passages, the the chapters here. It's always nice when it works out this way. It's not always the case, but this is what's called a chiasm in Scripture, or just kind of a sandwich structure, which is from uh, chapter 8, we have a speech by Samuel and the request of Israel as a king. And then if you look down in the outline in chapter 12, we have kind of a replay of that speech in which it's Samuel's farewell speech of what's happened so far. The good news is on the flip side of this kind of sandwich structure, Israel does repent, and they, they realize that the way that they had asked of a king was sinful. But you can kind of see then through this structure here that there's things on either side of this passage. Uh, we're going to have peace offerings that we're looking at here in a moment. Uh, we have peace offerings at the end of the passage. We have a, a private anointing of a king and then a public coronation ceremony. Uh, we have uh, Saul dealing with detractors early in his uh, time here and then also dealing with detractors later. But if you notice in the, in the structure here, there's kind of a middle section that kind of defines all of that, and that's Saul's defeat of the Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, that's coming to Israel, uh, that's on the doorstep, and we'll deal with that example of that, of that event and how important it is as we come to it. 
Well, as we look, we open this passage here. Uh, we simply turn, we're told that there is a man of Benjamin. We get a little bit of a genealogical line of Saul's father, Kish. Uh, and what we have is we're told immediately uh, that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, you might remember Benjamin, the last of the sons of Jacob um, in the story in Genesis. And Benjamin has just been described a number of times in the book of Judges. We've said before, 1 Samuel is right on the edge of Judges. It's kind of even an overlap. Samuel is the last of the Judges. And if you flip back for a moment just at the end of Judges, you'll notice that the last few chapters of Judges are a very dark a very sad time in Israel's history, and it's all about the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin commits a great sin and is actually nearly exterminated by the other tribes of Israel. This is the civil war of Israel. All of the other tribes rise up uh, in one sense, in a good way, because Benjamin has been so sinful, but they are fighting Benjamin, and we're told that there are only 600 fighting men and Benjamin left by the end of Judges. So when Saul says, I'm from the least of the tribes, he's not kidding. Uh, this is a very small tribe. This is a tribe that has been nearly extinguished from Israel's history. Um, and yet this is the call of Saul and where he comes. In fact, Saul, we learn, is from the tribe of Gibeah, which is the very, I'm um, sorry, from the town of Gibeah, which is the very town in which this sin has been committed in Judges. So we have Saul, in a sense, a humble son. And what's interesting here in the beginning part of this section is that it's the sonship of Saul that is emphasized. He is the son of Kish. His father comes to him with a request, a call, a summons to adventure, you might say. This is how this uh, whole thing gets started. He says, the donkeys are lost. Saul, go and look for them. Now, Saul is at this time not a little boy. Uh, Saul is most likely in his 30s or 40s at this point, and he seems to be a dutiful son. Um, this is good news, by the way, in Samuel, because Samuel, the whole story, is a lot to do about sons and families. Uh, we have the opening beginning of this story with Eli, the great priest, but has two uh, very wicked sons who, uh, who we, in a sense that he cannot be, they cannot be replaced in his family line. So Samuel is, in a sense, adopted as a son for Eli. But then we had another good or bad news before about this, that Samuel's own sons turn out to be wicked as well. But we turn to this passage, and we have a man who seems to be obedient to his father. His father calls him to look after these donkeys, and it's almost a comical scene here as we're looking for donkeys, trying to find donkeys, bumping into people along the way. Oh, well, there's a, a man of God, we're told, the servant says. Maybe we can ask him, but uh oh, we don't have anything to give him. Oh, we do, actually, after all. It's kind of one after another of these details. And what's being emphasized here is the sovereign providence of God. This seems like a funny little scene where we're just trying to find donkeys, but what we're actually getting is the call of the man who would be king. And what we're being told is God is still king. Israel has rejected God's kingship by uh, wrongfully wanting a king like the other nations, but God is saying, I'm still in charge. I'm orchestrating all of these things. This is God's sovereign providence. Uh, we might remember even in the Gospels when Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. 
He tells his disciples, go, you'll find a donkey here. It's going to be tied up in this manner. It's never been ridden. Someone's going to come out to you. When you do, tell them the Lord needs it. All these details Jesus tells in advance, and lo and behold, the disciples find it, everything just as Jesus has described. Well, here we have the providence of God in calling forth this king. And we find out, it's kind of uh, in the, the literary device, who is this man of God, we might be wondering. And yes, it is actually Samuel after all. And Samuel has been told ahead of time about Saul coming. Look at verse 15. Uh, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. What do you notice there is an interesting word, prince, which is going to show up a couple times. It's not actually the word king. It's kind of the, the, the crown prince, uh, the, the king's successor, the prince who will be king. Uh, God is telling Samuel to announce him. We're actually going to have to find out how Saul is going to be tested in his role of king, even before he is, in a sense, truly acknowledged as king. Saul is almost going to have to act in the role of a judge until he comes fully into his kingship. The Lord tells Samuel here one of the first things that Saul is supposed to do as king. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines have been the ones oppressing Israel so much so far in Samuel that we'll also find out another enemy is at the gates as well. This is what Israel had asked of the Lord. We want a king to save us, to fight our battles for us. The Lord has been actually fighting Israel's battles so far. But again, the Lord is actually gracious. He is going to call someone who's going to fight the battles for Israel, who's going to save them from the hand of the Philistines. And look at what the Lord's, again, the mercy and grace of the Lord. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. This is similar from the Exodus as well. Again, despite the fact that this is a request that goes against the Lord's own sovereignty, he is gracious. He's going to give them a man who's going to do this for them. And we have Samuel now then interacting with Saul as he asks where the seer is. He's trying to find out more about donkeys. This is kind of interesting. Even in the Hebrew, there's a play on words where Saul is wanting an announcement. He wants to find out something. He wants an announcement about the donkeys. And Samuel says, I have an announcement for you, but it doesn't have to do with donkeys. You're going to be the king of Israel. And he kind of gives him uh, a little bit of a uh, a tease here at the beginning. He tells the donkeys uh, are found, but then he says, is it not for you and for all your father's house that is the desire of Israel? And Saul is saying, why would you talk to me that way? I'm just a Benjamite. I'm from the least of the tribes. I'm from Gibeah, you know, the place where that last civil war started. Not exactly a, a great beginning place for Saul, not a great line, not a great history from where he's coming from. And yet Samuel is calling Saul in this manner. It should remind us even of the New Testament passage that was read for us when Paul says, brothers, consider your own calling. Were you great and were you powerful when the Lord called you? Saul is being called in this manner as well. Look at verse 22 as we get kind of this next scene. It's kind of an extended scene. But before any of this anointing of the king happens, we're going to have a feast. Why a feast? Well, this is the sacrifice. This is a peace offering. In the Old Testament, the peace offering is the one sacrifice you can eat together. Uh, it's sort of the fellowship meal. 
Uh, so you offer this sacrifice, and then the, the people around would gather and eat this together as a, uh, as a dinner, as a meal together. Uh, so Samuel takes Saul, his young man. They bring them to a hall. And look at what he does. It says in verse 22, he gave them a place at the head of the table of those who had been invited who are about 30 persons. And Samuel goes on, tells the cook, hey, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is before you eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests or literally that you might eat with the people who have been invited. It's almost like Samuel is saying, hey, all of Israel is here, Saul. And we've put you at the head of the table, and we've saved you the best portion of the meat of the sacrifice. We'll tell, you, we'll tell you more in a second about that portion of the sacrifice that's significant. But we see Samuel is setting forth all of this for Saul. And what is an example of this? This is no doubt Samuel's own place at the head of the table. Samuel is the man of God. He's the one, it says, that everybody waits for him to bless the sacrifice and to eat together. And Samuel has given up his own seat to Saul. This is the story of a designated successor. We've seen this before with Eli and so Samuel becomes almost like an adopted son in Eli's house. Saul is no longer going to be son of Kish. In this whole passage, he is going to be son of Samuel. Samuel is in a sense adopting. This is like an adoption feast. This is like a feast of the kingdom. And he's bringing up this designated successor, the crown prince, setting before him what's good, putting it all out there. Saul ate with Samuel that day, we're told. Uh, when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed is spread for Saul. He went down to sleep. And Samuel, at the break of dawn, calls up to Saul to send him on the way. And then he's going to meet with Saul privately in this. But this is a sense of a new heir to the kingdom is being called. Anything before Saul actually knows what's going on. All he knows is that, okay, the donkeys have been found, that's great, but the man of God has invited me and showered grace on me in this way. Look then at verse uh, 1 of chapter 10. Uh, Saul sends, uh, Samuel sends Saul's servant ahead of him to sort of privately talk to Saul, and it says, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? There's that word prince again. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So this is a private anointing. Anointing in the Old Testament is taking oil and pouring it over the head. It's actually where we get the word Christ. Christ is anointed one. Saul here is a type of Christ. He's being anointed. Just as the priests were anointed, even prophets were anointed, he is being anointed crown prince here. And what Samuel does next is give a few signs to Saul that this is really true. You can kind of imagine Saul going, what is going on here? I was sent on this wild donkey chase, and suddenly I'm being anointed king of Israel without knowing anything that's going on. I'm from this small tribe. I'm from this town that's got a notoriously sinful and bad history. And suddenly Samuel has anointed me king. So Samuel says, here's the signs uh, that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. Uh, one is he is going to find out that the donkeys have been found. People are going to come to him. It said at Rachel's tomb. By the way, you might remember Rachel is the one who gave birth to Benjamin. 
She dies right after the birth of Benjamin. It's actually right in context uh, that Jacob, in, in chapter 35 of Genesis, is told, kings are going to come from you, and then Benjamin is born. It almost seems like if you're reading Genesis that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is going to be the royal tribe. And then suddenly Rachel dies. Later on, we're actually told that Judah is the tribe that of the kings are going to come from. But how did we get there? If you remember the story, just for a second, you can look back perhaps later, is Benjamin is treated as sort of the, the highest of his brothers. Jacob bestows on Benjamin a kind of special favor like he did Joseph. If you remember, the brothers come to Egypt. Benjamin is given the highest seat, the head of the table. But it's Judah who stands up and offers himself to take the place of a punishment that is given to Benjamin. Isn't that interesting? We are given a sense of a kingdom given to Benjamin, but it's going to be taken away because of another tribe that self-sacrifices on the behalf of the other. And therefore, Jacob, when he blesses his sons, says to Judah that the scepter will not depart from you. It's kind of a nice little uh, foreshadowing of this passage and, yes, of our Judah king who comes and sacrifices for himself. So uh, Saul then is told about the donkeys being found at Rachel's tomb, walking us through this bit of history behind, perhaps making him think about this. Then another sign is that three men who are going up to Bethel, this is verse 3, um, are going to be carrying three loaves of bread and a skin of wine, and they are going to give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. Now, in one sense, again, this is just kind of a providential sign of you wouldn't have expected this, but it's going to happen. But there's even more to this. Bethel is another high place where sacrifices are being offered at this time. And this seems to indicate that these are priests who are offering up the loaves on the altar. This is the uh, the memorial bread that the Lord had given and talked about to Moses. It seems like Saul is actually going to be receiving some of this priestly bread as well. So it's a, almost a priestly sign that he's being accepted in this manner. And then lastly, the last sign here is of the spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon him. There's going to be a group of prophets, almost like a traveling musical band, playing their different instruments, probably in praise to the Lord. And suddenly the spirit's going to come on Saul and he is going to join them. These are all signs to Saul, not just of the fact that what you thought happened is actually true, you're not dreaming, but they're actually a kind of symbolic sense of his office. He is going to be accepted in a kind of priestly manner the way Samuel was as well. Uh, he is going to be told about the donkeys at the tomb where Rachel is told the kings are going to come from her. He is going to be a king. And then look at the other sign. Saul is going to be found among the prophets. Is this spirit-anointed man going to be prophet, priest, and king? It seems like, in some sense, sharing in these offices of Israel that normally were separate. In a sense, Samuel was kind of joining these together as well. The other point that I wanted to bring up again is this leg of the sacrifice that's saved for Samuel. If you look up in Leviticus 7, that's actually for the priest's family. So he has saved this for Saul, which is not normally Saul's portion, but Samuel has set this aside. Saul is being told, when the Spirit comes on you, you are going to share in these kind of offices the way that Samuel did as well. 
We have then this great statement that uh, when the Spirit comes on Saul, that he is given another heart. In fact, he becomes a new man, actually, in this. That this is changing Saul in somehow. That he joins the prophets as they're prophesying along. And look in verse 11. The people kind of seeing this, and somehow they know or recognize who Saul is, perhaps by his wealthy father. It says, well, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Notice that last question. Who is their father? Who's the there? The there is the prophets. And the general answer that's given in Samuel is that Samuel is this, the father of the prophets. And again, the son of Kish seems to be now uh, found out as the son of Samuel. He is being listed among the prophets. He's being chosen by God's grace, being swept up in this, probably not even aware of all that's going on for Saul and being given all of these things. Even as he goes home in this next paragraph, uh, his uncle, uh, possibly Abner, who we find out is the uncle of Saul later on, says, oh, you met the, the man of God. You met Samuel. What did he say to you? And Saul's like, uh, the donkeys were found. That's all he says. It says, of the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken to him, he didn't say anything. Saul seems to be a bit in a shell shock here of what's going on, and you can't blame him. All of this that's being given, laid upon him, probably thinking about what's going on here. And then we have this next scene that Samuel, no one really knows what has gone on. Samuel is going to call the people of Israel together. He calls them at Mizpah. This is the same place earlier that's of significance in Israel's history. He sets them out. He says, I told you that I would give you a king. Now let's take lots. Lots was a way to determine in the Old Testament God's providence. It says the lot belongs to the Lord. It's kind of like dice. And it comes to the tribe of Benjamin. It comes to Saul's clan. It comes down to Saul himself. And they say, where is he? (laughs) He doesn't seem to be found among them. Look at verse 22. Is there a man still yet to come? Is this the right guy? And Samuel says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Every time I read the word baggage or luggage in certain things, I cannot get out of an airport concourse. This is not what's being happening here. This is actually a word that means the military gear. Seems like Israel knows they've got enemies on the doorstep. They know they're meeting with Samuel, and it's kind of like bring along the armor, bring along all the military stuff, and that's where Saul is hiding. This uh, seems to indicate just a sense of timidity. And again, who could blame him? of what's going on with this. He doesn't want the reins of power. That seems to be a good thing here in Scripture. And the people shout out, long live the king. Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingdom is what it says. There's rights of the kingdom and there's duties of the kingdom. God has elected. He has chosen Saul. And that's good. That's gracious. And he says there's privileges of this. There's blessings that you're going to receive on this. And there's also duties. Samuel writes this out in a book. This is a constitutional monarchy, you might say. Writes up a constitution. He sends all the people away, and Saul returns home. And it says here at the end of this passage, some worthless fellows, sons of Belial, we're told, um, which we don't really know what that means, sons of worthless sons, say, how can this man save us? And they despised him. They brought him no present but he held his peace. Saul, again, first action here, is not going to take any kind of action against these people. He holds his peace. 
And by the next section here, as we get to the main center of this passage, to the climactic part of this passage, we find out Saul is actually back home driving the oxen. We're told here that Nahash the Ammonite, as an Ammonite king, Ammon is, by the way, to the east and the Philistines are to the west, so we're actually supposed to be kind of getting the sense that Israel is being squeezed here from the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east, that kind of pincher movement. They're getting, uh, things are on the corner here for them. Uh, Nahash is a brutal king. Uh, He attacks the men of Jabesh. He offers a treaty, but it's a disgraceful treaty. He says, I'll let you live if I poke out every right eye of the men. Um, basically showing the, the, the superiority that he has over them, the shame that he can inflict, that they're not even going to become any kind of military threat to him anymore. And yet, in all of this, uh, the cry goes up and messengers go out. They ask for seven days, which the king of Nahash, apparently thinking they are no threat, whatever, and say, yeah, you can have seven days to figure out what to do. And they go out. Israel is in distress. Now look at where Saul is in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Saul's not actually exercising as a king yet. He's been told he's crown prince. We've actually been told that he's been long live the king is what the people shout. But he's not exactly exercising much kingship. In fact, the men of Jabesh don't even ask for Saul. They're just asking for help as this king of the Ammonites is coming down upon them. And there's weeping going on. And then verse 6 is the second time the Spirit of God comes on Saul. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. By the way, I should tell you, when the Spirit fills a person, anger can be a righteous response. A righteous response of Saul, that his anger is kindled, that he is going to go out and save his people. This is the same phrase of coming upon Samson and the judges. The judges often are told that the Spirit rushes upon them and that their first response is to save the people militarily. We've had the Spirit anoint Saul as a prophet. Now the Spirit, in a sense, coming upon Saul that he would go out says he took a yoke of oxen, probably the ones he was just driving, cut them to pieces. He sends them out throughout the territory of Israel. This should remind us of something. It's that same story I told you about at the end of Judges, if you go back and look at it. Um, there, it's a gruesome story of a woman who's actually cut up into 12 pieces, sent around to the 12 tribes of Israel. They're so incensed by what's happened in Benjamin that they go and attack Benjamin. But here we have now a Benjamite who is now leading the charge, sending out 12 uh, pieces of oxen saying to Israel, it's going to be like this if you don't join me because we've got to save our brothers. It gets even more interesting when you find out that Jabesh Gilead is the one place that didn't respond to the call in Judges, and they're the ones saying, please come to our aid now. And now it's a son of Benjamin who's coming to their aid, riding past wrongs. In all of this, notice how Saul uh, brings together the people as well. Israel is very divided at this stage in its history, but it says they come out as one man under Saul, and as Saul brings them and defeats uh, the Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, in battle, um, he brings them together. It's an amazing victory. It says they're sent out, scattered the Ammonites, and then the response to all of this is to renew the kingdom. The people, look at verse 11 of of chapter 12. 
they're so uh, amazed by all that Saul does, has done. They, hey, they say, hey, remember those people who said that Saul was, a, was, was worthless? How can he do anything? Hey, bring out those people who said, Saul, Saul shall, shall Saul reign over us, that we may put them to death. But Saul... And a great response says, no one should be put to death this day. Again, think about all of this in light of that civil war in Israel, all that had gone to putting death of one Israelite to another. Saul says, put it behind us. Not a man shall be put to death today. For today the Lord has worked salvation, giving glory to God. Hey, it was God who did all of this. It wasn't about me. Don't worry about the people who were detractors of my kingship earlier. And Samuel says to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, another significant covenant renewal site, and says, let's renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. This is the public coronation of Saul. And they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. This is a great festivity because peace offerings, again, means food, it means meal, it means fellowship, all before the Lord. And their Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is a very good beginning to Saul's kingship. And it's all the work of God, calling a man out, equipping him. Saul wasn't equipped and ready. He knows that. But putting this man there so that his people might be saved. But I want us to think about chapter 11, this central point that, that uh, Saul is given the kingship, but it's kind of like a judgeship, a crown prince. It's kind of like your beginning stage. And the Lord tests him. There's a first test that comes on this spirit-anointed man. The man Nahash, the word Nahash in Hebrew is the word serpent. This is a serpent king. King Nahash means serpent king, the king serpent. This should remind us something as well in Scripture of the serpent that came, crept into the garden. And Adam, this new man that God had set up and say, have dominion over all of my creation. There's a first test to Adam when a snake comes creeping into the garden. And Adam, of course, fails to guard his bride. He lets the serpent talk to his wife. And in fact, kind of stands by it, we're told, and listens in, lets her take the first bite, and then joins in afterwards. This is a test for Saul. This is Saul has been set up almost like a new Adam, given the spirit, given these offices, given a kind of garden paradise, the promised land for Israel to rule over. But then there's a test. The serpent comes from the east into the garden, and Saul is given this opportunity. Is he going to trust the Lord or his own strength? And the good news is that this first uh, run of things is that Saul actually trusts the Lord. He turns to him. He does, in a sense, what the history, reverses the history of Israel in all of this and defeats the enemy, the serpent king, and gives God the glory. Obviously, something else is going to happen to Saul. We're going to have to get longer into Saul's uh, history and what goes on, but I don't want to take away from that with Larry. Let's just, in a sense, see this is a good beginning. This is faith, in a sense, being acted. But the question in all of us for anything in the Christian faith is, are we going to continue in faith? Good beginnings are good, but do you know what's even better? Good endings. Continuing in perseverance. If there's anything we can gain as an application of this chapter for us, it's to say, 
Can we walk in the same victory, perhaps, that the Lord has given us? He has called us. This whole story is about a royal call that, beloved, is true for you as well. Because in Christ, who is the king, you share his kingship. The New Testament says we will reign with Christ forever and ever. Paul often writing the epistles to the churches in a sense say, says, can't you judge among yourselves? You're going to judge angels. You're going to reign forever. Start acting like it now. You guys are kings and queens here at Florida Coast. That's who I'm looking at. I'm looking at royalty because in Christ you've shared this call. God's brought you out of Gibeah. He's brought you out of a place of insignificance and he's given you his spirit and he's called you to these things and you've responded in faith. That's great for many of you, but walk in that faith. As we'll see with Saul, it doesn't always happen that way. And we know that people we know sometimes turn aside from the faith. So walk in the faith, walk in the gifts that God has given you. But beloved, this passage also tells us about a greater king who came and who from the tribe of Judah died self-sacrificially for his kingdom. That he fought the serpent to the death and then dying for it actually extinguished the reign and the power of the serpent overlord as well in your life. This is a picture of Christ's kingdom, that Christ came. You might remember what was said of him. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like I said of Saul, can anything good come from Gibeah? Yes, it can. That Christ had humble beginnings, that he was raised up, that he was given the spirit in fullest measure, that he followed his father in all that he did, a humble son, but exalted on high and is the king and ruler of us now. So let us trust him then. And so also share in his kingship and begin to, to persevere and walk in his ways. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's ask God's blessing then on this. Father, we give you thanks that you gave Israel a king that they did not deserve, that they deserved uh, much worse And then in this beginning moment, uh, you gave them someone who was unassuming, that you equipped him, that they gave salvation, he gave salvation to Israel then. But Father, we thank you most of all that you have given us a king in your son, whom you called, whom obeyed you to the very end, to death itself, and that we can now walk in his way. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with us, that the Spirit might abide with us, that we would abide in the Spirit, walk with Christ. We pray that we would not grieve the spirit as Saul later did. We pray that you would cause us to trust you and and by that live in the victory over the serpent that Christ has given to us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.